Welcome to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. I am here today with Derek. Derek, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, DJ, um, my name is Derek Burnt. Uh, Burnt as in burnt toast, but not spelled like it. Um, <laughs> been working with uh, DSLR and video for several years now. Um, just looking to get back into the swing of things a little bit after a little bit of a hiatus from doing video. And uh, love the opportunity to be able to sit down with you and talk uh, tech. Uh, what's the current camera in your bag, or are you still wielding a camera on a regular basis? I am currently uh, wielding a camera. Um, I'm actually, previously, uh, prior to my hiatus, I was running a Canon 5D Mark III. Um, sold that um, to some dis- disappointment, so to speak, uh, because of the fact that I took a loss on selling it, as most things. But uh, now I am actually running a Panasonic uh, GH4. Um, and loving the camera so far. Still a formidable package. All right. Yes. Uh, diving into the news. First up, we've got from uh, thephobographer.com. There's a report that Canon Senior Managing Director of Image Communications Business has mentioned and leaked that there are actually high megapixel DSLR prototypes floating around in the market. Uh, Canon has also expressed the desire to possibly launch a brand new freaking line of EF lenses to handle the new pixel resolution. I think they're looking at 50 megapixel what do you think Mm -hmm. about going to 50 megapixel um i you know i was thinking through this and i don't don't know with the megapixels i know they're 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 getting back into that game of trying to you know play the whole megapixels uh you know the more the better um but obviously as we all know you know there's several factors that go into the image quality and low light performance you know there's the pixel size density sensor sizes and and the way the cameras process the image itself so I think it depends on how they're planning on implementing the more megapixels, particularly the image processing, Well, if there's going to be any benefit to that. The uh, issue I see uh, going forward is actually that there's already almost a 50 megapixel camera out there in the DSLR lineup, and that's called the Nikon D810. Um, mm. They're offering 46 megapixel right now. And, and not to dig too much at uh, Canon's glass, but Nikon glass is already able to resolve 46 megapixel without any issue. Um, with the oh. EF lenses coming out, um, I'm concerned that we won't be seeing lenses for any time in the near future. Uh, Canon has yet to replace the 35 millimeter f1.4 which has been on the docket for about five years now and it's one of the only l glass that are still made out of plastic and then we have the debauchery that is the eos m none of those lenses (laughs) uh, came out very fast in fact that whole system has suffered from uh, maybe three lenses at most over the three-year lifespan that has been around if yeah. Canon offers up an EF series lens, are we going to get more lenses? And are we going to get them in a timely enough manner to make a new camera body and system worth it? So now the question I have is those Nikon glass that are out there now, were those specific to the higher megapixel cameras? Or were, was that existing glass that people didn't actually have to upgrade to and they were just able to handle that that type of size Nikon's high-end glass um, has always benefited from a little bit more sharpness than Canon's high-end glass, and mm-hmm. it's it's kind of more noticeable in the price. Um, the equivalent uh, twenty-four to seventy lens in Nikon's lineup is six to seven hundred dollars more than Canon's equivalent um, twenty-four to seventy. And, oh wow! And it's kind of maintained that throughout the range. Um, now, Canon doesn't have an equivalent uh, 85 F1.4, but the Nikon 85 F1.4 is 
fairly substantial and runs about the same price as Canon's 85 F1.2. So I think Nikon has just been making that level of quality in their glass lineup for their entire uh, manufacturing line, you know, whereas Canon is kind of... um, I don't want to say they're bad because I own a, a lot of L glass. In fact, mm-hmm. I I own almost all of Canon's L glass, and sure. it's um, I don't have any problem with it. But I am again shooting at uh, what I believe the five D Mark III is twenty two megapixels, and the mm-hmm. sixty is twenty megapixels. So you're not really getting into that super high megapixel count. I guess yeah. the, the question is: is if you're getting up to almost fifty megapixels, uh, should we be going with a DSLR or should we be looking into maybe a medium format camera? Yeah, probably going with the medium format camera. I mean, for me, it's, you know, with the Canon and, and moving up to the higher megapixels, it's sort of where do you start to draw the line between, you know, the DSLRs for especially for, you know, for the video versus now you're going into the higher end video cameras that are truly they're, they're not DSLR format. You know, they're they're their higher end um, cameras themselves. Um, for me, I mean. I would obviously, based on the work I do, I don't even know if I would move up to a 50 megapixel just because if it were to entail that I'd have to get all new glass for it. Um, if I'm starting to look at that kind of investment, then I'm going to start to question, do I really want to go with you know, a Canon DSLR versus, as you're mentioning, a medium format Um you know, it, it's tough, you know, and I wish I had a, a better opinion about it right now. Um, the 50 megapixel is nice. It's just I, I, I just wonder when it's actually warranted to actually have the 50 megapixels. I, I'd be curious to know what the quality is of the imagery itself that's going to be coming out of that. So when I've seen images from the 5D Mark three that have been blown up to a very very large sizes, we're talking poster size and beyond, and there wasn't any issue with uh, resolution in that case, um, going up higher, I suppose there might be a need in uh, you know product photography or possibly if you're shooting something like a, a magazine spread or something like that. Sure. Uh, they could be shooting at you know um, F16 or F8 or F10 or something like that in order to really cover all the items and then just cropping in with a single image. I suppose that's an option. Yeah. I don't really know. As far as video goes, though, I have a little breakdown chart here uh, in the show notes, and mm-hmm. it looks like se- uh, 720 P is one megapixel. Uh, 1080p is two megapixel. Uh, 4k is 8.8 megapixel <laughs> and uh, 8k, which is not even close to on the horizon yet is 33 point. Yeah. One eight yeah. megapixels. Yeah. So um, even at 8k, your stills from a 50 megapixel camera are roughly, um, uh, well, 8k is roughly two thirds the size of, yeah. Of that, so as far as video goes, I don't know that there's any benefit for filmmaking DSLRs uh, to go up to that high a megapixel. Maybe finer grain, um, I, I suppose. I don't. I don't really know. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the thing is, I just I don't know. With with the megapixel, what the benefit is, you know, especially for me, where I'm, you know, specifically always, you know, very much focused in on video itself versus just still photography. Um, But you know that that 8K video, I mean, 33.8 megapixels. I mean, you still 50 is quite a bit higher. So uh, you know, from a video perspective, it seems like it would probably be a little bit unnecessary from uh, that perspective. And of course, then you know. When you have a 50 megapixel uh, camera and if you are doing video, you know, some of the other factors are, you know, well, what kind of bit rate is it going to run and, and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I'd be curious. Well, uh, speaking of which, um, the Sony A7S has kind of done the opposite 
uh, those guys actually, instead of going up in megapixel, uh, took their sensor down to, I believe it's just about 9 megapixels. So uh, since it's rated for 4K, going down to a 9, nine or 8.5 megapixel sensor, uh, whatever it is, uh, mm-hmm. they were able to get more light into each of the photo sites on the sensor itself, which mm-hmm. means incredibly awesome low light performance uh, as compared to even the 5D Mark III. Um, I'm actually kind of hoping that uh, sensors will stop climbing upwards in megapixel and start uh, advancing the individual pixels instead. I, I would agree with that, actually. I think, that, you know, especially from uh, uh, with the DSLRs and with video, my, my concern has always been or what I've always been running up against, which everyone does, is low light performance. And, you know, when you have the higher megapixels, um, sure, it's nice to have that. But then you're introducing a lot more noise at the low light level. So I think I prefer personally having lower megapixels larger pixel density and your pixel size to get more of that light in to get better performance because that's the one thing I always struggle with is just low light shooting and not getting a lot of noise introduced into it and having to you know raise the ISO you know to incredible limits uh, just to get a somewhat of a decent picture that you know in post probably isn't going to be all that great to begin with um, you know and for me um, you know, when I'm looking at like even with the um, introduction now with like 4K and me using the GH4, I like running the 4K and then bringing it down to 1080 just because it gives me more to play with. But again, the low light is nothing like the 5D Mark III um, just because of the fact that, um, you know, the size of the sensor as well as the number of megapixels. But I, I think that's awesome that Sony's going that route where they're saying, you know what, low light's more important than the actual um, megapixels. Like they're not playing that game really, you know, with because that's what people buy, you know, regular consumers. That's what everybody's sort of always bought cameras on is, oh, it's got more megapixels. It must be better. And that's not always the case. Yeah, I've even, thinking back now, I had an old, old Fuji camera uh, back when they were using still disc formats. Um, I'm talking like floppy disk style. And uh, that thing, even though the images were only a thousand and some change uh, by, you know, 700 or 600 and some change, it took some great pictures. And I still use those to this day because they're just big enough for web resolution. Yeah. Uh, Moving on from there, um, and especially speaking of the GH4, announced at NEB last year, uh, 2014, a Thomas Shogun 4K HDMI SDI recorder was a pretty hot item, and it's finally starting to hit the streets. It's going to be priced at about $2,000, and it is considered to be an upgrade for GH4 and Sony A7S owners. Uh, What do you think? Do we need 4K recording in a separate device for ProRes and DNX HD? Um, me personally, no. I mean, having just, you know, started to move over to the GH4, I mean, I'm still just recording. Obviously, um, I haven't gone out yet to buy a $2,000, uh, external recorder. More expensive um, than the camera. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, but I, I am filming in 4k. Um, you know, I look at it as 4k's benefit right now, other than unless you're planning on putting something that's going to be shown out on, you know, a great big screen in a theater, um, which I think, you know, there's probably people that are doing that but you know for me i'm not i don't see that in my future anytime soon <laughs> but what i like about having the 4k in production right now is being able to record in 4k bring it down to 1080 and being able to have the room to actually get a little bit more um uh 
uh, detail, um, but as well being able to punch in on, on the image itself, um, just having that flexibility with the size of the image. But I don't think we're at a point where we need to be filming at 4K. And quite honestly, to to be recording to that external recorder, especially given the price, even even though you're recording at 10 bit versus the in camera 8 bit, I just I don't think there's that noticeable of a difference that warrants a two thousand dollar investment. Now, if I was planning on doing something that was going to be um, something that was going to be seen on a bigger screen again, you know, more like a movie theater or something of that nature where I needed to go up that high, I could see doing that investment. But again, then. You know, what other level are you at with a camera, perhaps? You know, are you recording on on some other type of, of device? But, you know, I, I just think my biggest hurdle with that, um, with, the, with the recorder is um, the, the price right now. I just, I, I couldn't see doing $2,000 for that. Well, a big issue with the $2,000 price tag, too, is that you're also dealing with all of that data. Um, it looks like roughly five hours on two terabyte hard drive. Um, <laughs> five hours isn't is it an extreme amount, especially for two terabytes. And yeah. you start getting into that sort of uh, data usage alone, and you're going to need external devices to handle yes. that. You're going to need a server. You're going to need a bunch of rated hard drives in order to mm-hmm. handle all that footage. And then... Even after that, accessing the footage and editing the footage, I, I mean, your scratch drive just for editing five hours worth of footage is going to have to be a minimum of two terabytes. We're probably talking more like three or four terabytes in order to really give you some breathing room on that sort of thing. And five hours, on even on a small commercial project like a, a three or four minute short, it isn't an unreasonable amount of footage to collect. No, you're right. And, and so it is more than just the cost of the $2,000 because you do have to cons- start to consider your what what is your um, other costs associated with being able to support that, you know. And so, as you mentioned, exactly, you know, external storage, you know, you start looking at, you know, say like G-Rate is one of the products out there, one of the external, you know, drives. And, you know, I think an 8 gig is like, I don't know, $700. And of course, that's eight or for eight terabytes, I mean. And so if you're recording just five hours at that 10 bit, you know, uh, uh, footage and that's taking two terabytes right there, you're, you're going to start chopping away at storage at unbelievable rates and it's going to get expensive really fast. And what's the benefit? You know, I mean, are you really seeing any nominal uh, I mean, I know you'll see an increase in the quality of the image itself, but there there is that law of diminishing return, you know, as to where exactly do you draw the line between, you know, managing your storage space and, and the amount of resources you're using versus what's the image quality and what are you really getting out of it? Well, and there's also uh, the transcoding issue. You, you probably aren't going to do your grading and, and what have you with your ProRes files, but you're probably going to end up working off of proxies for uh, normal mm-hmm. editing and things like that. So now you've created doubles and triples. And my my in-house server here is a 24 terabyte server, and that isn't a insubstantial cost. I mean, uh, I built mine myself, which is pretty techy thing to do, and that's um, mm-hmm. that was. Uh, uh, Fifteen hundred dollars, I believe, by the time. Sure. And you know, I didn't even include some of the top-notch items. I could have, you know, I went with off-the-shelf hard drives instead of spending the extra seventy-five or eighty dollars a piece to get red hard drives. And you know, now my three uh, terabyte drives that are in there don't look anything compared to the four and five terabyte drives that are around now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're right. When you're dealing with that type of media, you know, you're probably you're going to be running on proxy. And if you're not running on proxy, say, you know, you want to just edit and, and do all your footage in 4K, you know, 
most likely you're you're upgrading your hardware. You know, so not only are you dealing with storage, you're dealing with hardware. I mean, 4K in general, I think has introduced a lot of um, what I would consider resource. Um, uh, not issues, um, but but definitely th- things to consider. Uh, I mean, right now I'm running on a, I think it's a mid-2011, 2012 iMac, and it's just, you know, a 21 and a half inch iMac, and I'm looking to upgrade. And now that I'm on the GH4, even though I still bring in 4K and I go to 1080, um, depending on what I'm, you know, putting in there or using for, you know, effects or whatnot, um, I'm actually at the point now where I'm starting to look at doing, you know, potentially either the iMac uh, Retina display or um, or going to a Pro, um, just because of the fact that uh, you know this one s- sometimes is a little sluggish. Usually, when I'm dealing with proxy media, I don't notice that much of an issue. But again, it comes down to you know. The storage versus performance and so it's like okay if i can't necessarily afford all the storage maybe i want to get a computer that's gonna be a little bit beefier to just run in 4k so i'm not having to create all this proxy media i don't know uh, you know it's it's one of those things where i i'm still as i'm getting you know back into things sort of trying to figure out where where is the the most acceptable um way of dealing with you know 4k and in 1080p and, and doing all that stuff and and purchasing or managing my resources appropriately from both a computing perspective as well as a storage perspective. Well, the GH4, I was actually a little surprised um, when I started filming on it in 4K. Um, The data rate isn't, I mean, it's still excessive, but Mm -hmm. it's only roughly double what I was using on my 5D Mark III and um, some of my other cameras in the shop. Uh, That's not as bad as it seems. The 128 gig... uh, SDXC cards that I'm using right now are able to get me through almost an entire day of shooting without having to change out cards. So that part's pretty nice. And I'm also kind of uh, one of those people that says the camera should be able to record its own footage. You know, mm-hmm. you shouldn't need, like with the so- Sony A7S, they advertise that kind of towards, hey, look in the future, you'll be able to um, output 4K into an external recorder. Well, that's fine, but a lot of people don't buy the camera because it's going to output something else. They buy it because it's going to record something and they're going to use it for that. Uh, Not having that option or having to buy external gear that makes your whole setup more clunky is kind of a a painful experience, especially on a budget. Uh, it, It can add up really fast having all this ancillary equipment in order to record extra stuff. And the A7, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be I could be mistaken, but in order to record 4K on it, you have to use an external recorder for that, right? Yeah, the A7S yeah. does not record internal 4K. So um, you got 1080p and you got a few flavors there, but um, you have to use the micro HDMI port uh, to get to the Shogun in order to record 4K. And mm-hmm. that's another issue entirely is the connector systems. Uh, these prosumer cameras have HDMI and micro HDMI ports, and those things are pretty flimsy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're pretty lucky that uh, Thomas has uh, taken the opportunity to add recording protection into their devices so that if you do yank the HDMI cord, your footage isn't completely destroyed. But it's still, you're relying on this basically no fastening, non twist lock connector to transfer all of your information from camera to in device for recording. And I I mean, I guess you could record in camera as well as on the device and use the in camera stuff as your proxies. But 
I don't know. Uh, for a lot of filmmakers, it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. And then there's been early reports that the um, uh, Shogun uh, does, ne- does not necessarily provide much clearer footage out of the Sony A7S, and people are sort of disappointed with what they've been seeing. Well, and I think, too, not only the connection that's an issue, but then when you start to think about how you, know, how you as an individual may use the camera, you know, if now you're having to use an external record, what's nice about the GH4 is the fact that you've got the option. You know, you can either record in camera with the 4K or if you want to get the higher bit rate and whatnot, you can, you know, use the the external recorder. Whereas with the uh, Sony A7S, it's, you know, you have to actually use an external recorder. And so depending on how you're set up from a rig perspective, you know, you're just adding more things that you have to either mount or hold or, you know, it's, it, for me, I'm always trying to figure out, you know, or, or try to always uh, – I always aspire to less is more and <laughs> trying to make it where it's as easy as possible to just be able to hold the camera, move the camera and move it from, you know, a rig to a tripod to a monopod. And if you're having to introduce more items that you're having to like mount to a cage or to the camera or something, um, that, that's just making it not as enticing for me, at least, you know, to, to have to lug something around like that. Uh, definitely. Uh, and carrying is a huge issue, especially if you're working by yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. The big benefit I found with the GH4 is actually the weight and the size of the lenses. Um, I can carry three or four lenses with me in a very small bag, the GH4 and some audio kit, and still have that all in basically a male messenger bag, which is extremely enticing for uh, traveling, especially if you have to hike or go through some, uh, you know, forested areas or whatnot. I spent the last five months in California working on some stuff for uh, the uh, Bureau as well as uh, the Fish and Wildlife uh, system. And I had to climb back into, you know, wooded areas and go up big stairs to get to the uh, the tops of the dams and the reservoirs. And it was really nice having the GH4 and a monopod as opposed to my 5D Mark III and some really heavy cannon glass to... Yeah, yeah. To, and, that was, and that was one of my challenges buying the GH4 because... You know, I, I, I was always used to going with either, you know, the APS-C type lenses for Canon or, the, you know, when I was on the 5D Mark III, uh, the full frame stuff. And when I was looking at the GH4, I kept going back and forth between, uh, you know, going with a, a micro four thirds, you know, um, format like a Panasonic or, a, you know, Olympus, but um, or, or going with more of a Canon lens and then using an adapter and, yeah, I saw your post where you were show, you know talking about the three different lenses that you had for the for um, the micro four thirds. Me, on the other hand, I ended up going with the Tamron twenty four to seventy millimeter, which I would have I used actually uh, originally on my Canon five D Mark three, and I went with the Metabone Speed Booster, and it's great. I love it because I've got the flexibility of being able to use that lens in a variety of other situations, but it's heavy as heck. Yeah, and and that's the challenge that now I'm sort of like I look back and I'm like, did I make the right choice? You I, know, because of that, I've been pretty happy with the um, uh, 24 to 70 equivalent um, uh, Olympus version for Micro Four Thirds. That is the f 2.8 doesn't mean the same thing as it does on a, a Canon lens, but. Mm-hmm. It's really small and compact, and I also do have the uh, speed booster, and I find that I end up using that with uh, the 
Canon 50mm f1.4 and 85mm f1.8 simply because those are both uh, smaller profile lenses Mm -hmm. and they kind of fit in well with uh, the rest of my regular Micro Four Thirds lenses. It makes it sort of a convenient package whereas if I were to pack my 51.2 that's a good solid one and a quarter pound lens and suddenly you could fit uh, three or four Micro Four Thirds lenses into the same form factor. Yeah, and that Olympus one, that's the one that one doesn't have image stabilization, right? That's sort of, sort of the the key difference between that and the Panasonic, right? Is that one has image stabilization and one doesn't? Yeah, exactly. The um the Olympus 14 to 40 millimeter, I believe, or excuse me, 12 to uh, 40 millimeter, it does not have IS, but you do get a little bit more reach. The uh, mm-hmm. Panasonic has IS, but it's a 12 to 35. I've played around with both of them, and I actually had uh, both of them in the studio here for a couple of weeks to really get a feel for them and decide which one I liked better. And while I do like the IS, I found the construction and build of the uh, Olympus to be a little bit more uh, solid and it felt a little superior to uh, what you got with the Panasonic. The mm-hmm. image stabilization is nice, uh, but for 4K footage, um, in my testing, I kind of found that it it actually kind of softened uh, the image a bit with that uh, image stabilization. So it ended up kind of degrading the resolution, whereas the uh, Olympus doesn't have image stabilization, so you're never relying on that, and you end up using a rig or something like that. Yeah. Well, and one of the reasons I ended up going with the, the Canon too is because with the speed booster, I was looking to try to, because what I was always reading about the Panasonic lens was um, I was concerned with being able to get a shallow depth of field. Oh, yeah. And and that and that was what I was really wanting to make sure that I would have. But you know, I, I like the, the the lenses that you mentioned, especially that was it the eighty five millimeter uh, Canon. Yeah, you know, f one eight. Yeah, because that's nice because that's a small, that's a fairly small lens. I mean, it's, it's a heck of a lot smaller than my Tamron, uh, twenty four to seventy. Um, but you put that on the Micro Four Thirds and. Um, you know, right there, you might, you know, get a little bit more, uh, quite a bit of reach, I, I would assume. It depends on, I think, on the adapter itself. Um, well, I, I think the um, calculation works out to 1.7. So 1%, uh, 1.7 times the uh, focal length of the lens that you're working on when you're using the speed booster. Yeah. Uh, so 50 would be uh, somewhere in the 80 range, and an 85 would be somewhere in the 120 or 130 range. And I'm not using a calculator right now, so those yeah. numbers might be a little bit off. I won't hold you to it. Uh, but you also, you know, you get the extra boost in in aperture light yeah. input. So then you're knocking that uh, 514 down to a, uh, a 10 or a 0.95 equivalent, I believe. And the yeah. uh, 85 becomes like a 1.2 or 1.3, something like that. Uh, so that gives you a little bit more of an advantage. I found honestly the the autofocus for the GH4 is so good that I wanted to use um, uh, the native lenses, yeah, yeah. especially for photography. For video, it's not as big of an issue. Um, I generally tend to cheat a little bit. I will use the autofocus to frame a shot, and then I will just go from there. If sure. I do need to pull focus back and forth, I have a set of Voigtlanders. Um, I have the seventeen point five. F095 and the 25 millimeter F0.95. And those are great for knocking out the background and giving you that um, shallow depth of field you're looking for, especially if you're just filming talking heads. It's not quite a a 51.2 on a full frame, but it's still pretty sexy. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and obviously I've got the Tamron right now. I'm, I'm obviously going to be looking at adding to my arsenal of lenses. And I, I, I have to be honest is I'll probably be uh, strongly considering uh, more of a native lens uh, just because of a from a size perspective. But it, obviously it's always comes down to buying a lens that's, you know, that's right for you and right for what you're, you're looking to do. But uh, yeah, there are times when I'm, I'm holding the camera with that Tamron on there and I'm like, yeah, this is awfully heavy. That Tamron on there, that's like an elephant riding on an ant, man. That thing's <laughs> like almost twice the size of a GH4. Yeah, exactly. It's that's like some an of those interesting choice. Using. Yeah, it's like some of the, well, you know what, I, t- the Tamron, uh, I didn't want to go with um, uh, the Canon because the Canon is just much more expensive. The Tamron, I, I liked it when I had the 5D Mark III. Um, and so part of it was just, you know, what I was used to. Um, but, you know, when the speed booster sort of came into play, you know, and gained that additional um, – um, uh, you know, aperture and, and again, that light in there, I, I decided to go with that. My, my biggest concern was just going with the Panasonic and it being too soft um, and not really being able to get that, sh- that shallow depth of field um, and then sort of being stuck in it you know, um, with, with the Panasonic itself. So, but who knows, uh, another several months or year or whatever. And then for all I know, I'll be getting rid of the Tamron and going with a, a native lens. Uh, only time will tell. Now, speaking of the, uh, GH4, uh, posted here in the news rundown, uh, 4k shooter.net has posted a video from Vimeo user Gallo Calcia. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Maybe not, uh, demonstrating the use of Adobe camera raw with the GH4's 4k video. Um, basically he's importing the 4k footage from the GH4 into Adobe camera raw. And those of you who've shot on the 5d Mark three may have had experience with, uh, raw shooting with magic lantern and the DNG processing format that uses that uh did you take uh take a look at this video yeah i I took a look at the video i have to admit though i've never when i had the canon 5d um and and even with my camera now i have not actually done anything with um raw or converting you know doing anything the dng file so i'm i'm a little um not very informed in that area but i did look at the video itself um Oh, it's a curious thing, though, because you mentioned Magic Lantern. I just happened to see, I think it was on EOS HD, that uh, they were mentioning that there may be that Canon's blocking Magic Lantern on their latest 5D Mark III bodies. Uh, yeah, the uh, new firmware, uh, 1.3.3, yeah. it's not necessarily a block. It's just a new version of the firmware without backwards compatibility. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, uh, Magic Lantern has been able to keep up with the uh, changing firmware as they go along. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they're going to have to recrack the binary files from the uh, 1.3.3 firmware. I haven't really done the research to find out yet. Um, there's only been one or two cases reported so far of, of that firmware showing up in the wild. So I don't know if that's just on new cameras or or how that's going to end up working out. It's not available for download on Canon's website yet. So. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I just happened to mention that just because we were talking about the Adobe and and you know the raw footage, and so I just thought I'd mention that. But uh, yeah, but in terms of DNG or bringing anything into um, you know um, Adobe and converting it, I, I I haven't done that before. So, um, but I did see the uh, video; it was definitely interesting. It definitely looks like. Uh, quite a bit of work yeah. <laughs> to, to go in there. <laughs> you know, at first, I when I read uh, the news article, I, I was kind of excited at first. And then I actually watched the process and I thought, yeah. man, you know, uh, even if you scripted that, because you can script things in um, 
in Photoshop, it would still be a daunting task to handle a lot of footage. Maybe if you had that one special piece that you really needed to clean up, but for taking care of everything, it's not as though you can set a standard um, you know, color balance or correction setup for each individual shot or, or for a whole bunch of shots because each individual yeah. shot has its own flavor to it. So then you're kind of like, I don't know. It's, yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I'm, you know, I mean, as much as I like to have a, a real, you know, attention to detail, um, I sort of draw the line when things start to look really cumbersome. It's like I, I just don't see the benefit for me personally. And so I watched the video and all I kept thinking of is like, wow, this is a lot of work. <laughs> I think it really just depends on um – and what you are trying to accomplish. If you're working on a, a huge budget, or, or you're probably not going to want to mess around with this. If you are a, a, an indie filmmaker on a really low budget and you don't know how Resolve works or you don't have access to, well, I guess that doesn't even work because you have to have access to Photoshop in order to use mm-hmm. the Camera Raw plugin. So then you're paying for that. Resolve yes. is free. So you could mm-hmm. edit your footage in Resolve and have many of the same features. Uh, you know, I don't really, I'm not really sure why this is a thing. I, you know, maybe I should scratch this from the article. Well, it, well you know, what's funny too is because when I saw this on the, on the show notes too, I, I started to like really dive in, sort of research it because I'm like, I've never, even when I had the Canon 5D Mark III, I just, I, I never got to the point where I you know, brought in Magic Lantern, which I know is probably blasphemy for many wow. Canon users because that's like the go to uh, hack to do on the camera itself. But I never actually recorded in raw so i just didn't have any really any knowledge of it and as i was looking at it i'm like well now that i'm on the gh4 i don't even know if or how i would really go about doing this or why i would be doing this and uh you know to your point too with uh the um uh with resolve i mean it's a free program that's actually on my list now of things that i want to sort of become proficient in or attempt to as much as you can um because i'm starting to find that i really want to get into more of like the color correction color grading and um there's a lot of features in there, but you know you can get a lot out of doing that as well as using some third-party tools that are fairly inexpensive, like uh, Neat Video and stuff like that. Yeah, for noise reduction and whatnot. Yes. Yeah. In fact, I just uh, recently purchased that for uh, their Final Cut uh, 10 plugin, and uh, it's actually pretty amazing how it can clean up the uh, the footage. It, yeah, it really is. It is good. The only issue is uh, is rendering time. Um, you start applying a lot of of uh, noise reduction with uh, neat video especially and you're going to be looking at very long <laughs> render times yes, for any yes. substantial amount of footage and it can be very daunting as in leave your computer for six hours and hope that it's done when you get back yeah true very true now moving on from there talking about raw files uh, adobe lightroom 5.7 is now available for download as well as offering up some new uh, raw formats to support they're also offering an intelligent way to uh, basically import your Apple Aperture and iPhoto libraries into Lightroom and become one with Adobe. Um, have you moved to Lightroom? Uh, did you use Aperture or iPhoto in the past? Um, you know what? I've used iPhoto in the past. I never got to using Aperture. Um, you know, um, I'm definitely curious with, with Lightroom. I never, I, I've looked at Lightroom a little bit, um, but I haven't really dived in to do much with that. I was using iPhoto. Um, I am surprised that, you know, there's support now for, uh, 
um, you know, for what um, Apple has been doing with sort of shifting around their photo support. It's a little strange to say the least. Uh, I know people haven't been too happy with with some of the moves that they've been making, but I haven't actually uh, moved over to uh, Lightroom yet and started playing with that. Um, and I don't know why. I, you know, for a long time, I was a very big Adobe user. You know, I was on Premiere Pro. I, I mean, I've got Creative Cloud. I've got Photoshop. I've got all of those applications. Um, but for some reason, I've just not been doing much with them now. I've been sticking more to the native stuff on on the Mac. But of course, that's because I'm a Mac person. So, you know, someone who's on Windows would probably be, you know, obviously more inclined to go with uh, with the Adobe product suite. So. Yeah, there are um, uh, Windows does offer well, Microsoft actually offers a Kodak pack for Windows 7 and Windows 8 users uh, that's updated fairly regularly that allows you to view um, images from uh, most raw formats that are provided by uh, most of the major brands of cameras. But uh, Lightroom is definitely my go to. I switched over uh, many years ago. I, I was working in Canon DPP, which is just the uh, regular support that you get on a disc with uh, any uh, Canon purchase, but uh, Lightroom has so many more features, and is uh, once you get to learning it, it has so much to offer that it's just become uh, a pretty standard workflow for me. Uh, plus, yeah. your library management is really nice in Lightroom. Uh, being able to automatically organize your photos by date and location and add meta tags to all of your photos so that you can search by keyword and whatnot. Um, it really, uh, you know, it makes me a lot more organized than I would be if sure. I was managing my own collection. Oh, sure, sure. You know, for me, the challenge I've always had with Adobe products, and uh, again, I'm always one where I try something and I usually end up, you know, if I move away from it, I end up going back to it like, you know, six months later or whatever, just because I'm always trying to keep up with things. But the thing that I've always just had difficulty with Adobe and probably why I didn't get into Lightroom is because the I'm the kind of user that um, I like to use the technology to to create, to do what I, I needed to do. Um, but I sort of start to have a sort of a, a breaking point of when with, like with Adobe, I found where it's like almost like very not very technical, but there's so much you can do that it becomes overwhelming that I sort of backed away from it a little bit. So like Premiere uh, Pro would be an example where I was always big with Premiere and then Final Cut uh, Pro uh, 10 came out and I was like, okay, now I sort of see where the two pools are. And so like with Lightroom too, when you start talking about being able to do all this stuff, and I know there's stuff that you can do on the Mac too, but I just find that Adobe products sometimes for me and people are probably going to laugh, but I sometimes find them almost too um uh complicated too overwhelming. complicated overwhelming yes uh especially if it's something you haven't used before well and uh, one of the the things that they don't really i mean they do document it i suppose but um it doesn't really stand out right away is that a lot of the features in most adobe products are hidden behind uh, combination keystrokes you know control v control c control b all of those sorts of things in order to uh, to really speed up your workflow. But if you never learn any of those hotkeys or you don't ever uh, go through and set your own hotkeys up, um, it can be pretty daunting to sure. uh, to get going in a lot of Adobe's products. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and, and the problem too is, uh, and it's a good problem, is that a lot of Adobe's products are 
um, very powerful. And with with that power comes there's a lot of intricacies to it. And and for me, it's just I've always I'm like, oh, I'm going to get into this. Like maybe it'd be Lightroom. I, I'm going to I'm going to learn Lightroom. I'm going to start using it. And then after about you know a day with it, be like, okay, I'm just scratching the surface, and I, I'm like, I can't dive in any deeper. Yeah, um, you know, one of the things that uh, really helped me when I first started with Lightroom is I actually just paid for uh, one of those lynda.com courses. Mm -hmm. Um, It was pretty easy to go through and about uh, 10, maybe 15 hours worth of dedicated time watching that was uh, enough to get me proficient in Lightroom and, and really be able to handle myself without any issue. Uh, They're kind of boring and they're not for everybody, but if you're not someone who learns by reading, uh, learning by following along with material is is a pretty uh, intuitive process. Oh, sure, sure. But uh, so, so you've been happy with Lightroom, though. I mean, now that you've moved everything over there, yeah. You know, the Lightroom application manages my server. It takes care of all my photos, uh, import and export. I set it up so that anytime uh, footage comes in, I uh, you know add metadata to it right away. I transcode to DNG format on my way in, so that way, if I need to share the files with anybody, uh, they're in an open source uh, raw format that everybody can open, as opposed to proprietary canon gh4 or or what have you and it's really been it's been pretty nice um especially for adding watermarks on the fly and uh doing batch processing and stuff like that if i have to kick out uh, 20 or 30 photos and i need to kind of just get them close to where i think they ought to be um it's not really the best way to go but i can use the auto feature in uh, lightroom and it'll kind of do a pretty decent job of getting the white balance and some of the other settings within range where I just need to tweak them a little bit to, to get going, especially when I'm not getting paid for the photography I'm doing. <laughs> um, yeah. Anytime I can save not having to bust my butt editing their photos is a good thing for me. Um, you know, you always get roped into that occasional wedding or sure. birthday or what have you. And those are the times where um, it does not pay for you to work on their stuff. So you you aren't really particular about whether or not everything is just so, but you want it yeah. to be better than it would be if they were running around taking the pictures. Exactly. And obviously, you know, um, doing something like that is going to be, you know, light years ahead of anything that they would be doing themselves. So, you know, if it makes it life a little bit easier for you, gives you some of your time back, but you're able to still give them something that, you know, you're relatively proud of and that they're definitely happy with. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, uh, going from there on the whole editing subject, uh, Seiki is a company that is well known for their 2014 release of uh, 4K panels. Uh, The only issue with these very affordable 4K panels is that they were 30 hertz panels, uh, which means uh, for gaming, they're pretty much out of the window for use because 30 hertz is just not enough. And for even desktop use, um, your mouse really chugs across the screen at 30 hertz. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're... Uh, attempting to release a brand new line in the first quarter of 2015. And I believe we're looking at uh, VA panels with a 60 hertz refresh rate and still 4K range. Uh, VA is closer to what you'd expect from an IPS display, whereas their older ones were TN panels, which have that issue of um, side view discoloration and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. These these panels are looking at being maybe 600 to $700. Uh, is that something you think you might move into in the future? Are you interested in getting a 4K editing monitor? 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, right now, obviously, my setup from a computing perspective um, wouldn't really support 4K, but that's where it comes down to, you know, as I'm looking for later this year to upgrade my equipment, um, you know, obviously, I'm still planning to stay within the Apple camp. Um, I've been debating between either going with the uh, 5K, um, you know, Retina Display iMac uh, or going with a Mac Pro. And obviously, if I was looking to go with a Mac Pro, especially, um, I would have to get a monitor for it. So I definitely would be considering a 4K panel. I mean, obviously, the 60 hertz um, refresh rate, I mean, that's Probably, I mean, I'm not much of a gamer, um, but I don't think that that obviously would be enough for a gamer. But for, you know, it's definitely getting closer for being a usable monitor with, you know, being able to do editing and things of that nature. Um, and 600, I don't think is too bad of a price. It just depends on how good of a quality the actual uh, monitor is itself. Uh, that, that'd be the only thing is just, you know, what what does the, you know, the imagery look like, the colors and, and, and things of that nature. But uh, um, it's definitely something I would I would definitely be considering. Now, how about yourself? Because I know that you know, what, what's your primary what do you use for editing? I know you've got that one laptop that you just oh, recently I've, purchased. I've got but, um, three edit, editing stations in okay. the studio. Uh, the one I'm on right now is my oldest system and this is a i7 920 system with a, a 24 gigs of ram and a gtx a 670 uh, 4 gig gpu and then i'm running a 2560 by 1440 uh panel on on okay. this unit and then my upstairs editing bay is a, a 4k monitor that's one of the samsung monitors that were released earlier this year it's a tn mm-hmm. panel as well and it's not really good for color grading but it's um it's good enough for editing and working on a lot of footage and uh, that system <laughs> it, that one's a little bit uh, more advanced um that's a uh, uh, i7-4790K uh, processor with uh, 32 gigs of RAM. Um, mm-hmm. I'm running a Titan GPU in there, and then uh, that's almost all SSDs now. My uh, editing drive is a 1 terabyte 840 EVO, and my main drive is another 840 EVO, and then I've got a couple <laughs> of, uh, of uh, RAID 0 SSDs uh, from Crucial in there as well for even faster access. Uh, So I've been working at 4K for a long time, and where it becomes a benefit for me is actually that I have the ability to put an entire 1080p uh, breakout panel in the corner of my screen and still have plenty of room for previews, timelines, effects, yeah. and all of my assets. Um, sure. I wouldn't grade on that TN panel, but for simply going through footage and making sure that everything is just so, it works pretty well. Um, yeah. I, it's... It's not bad. The only issue I've run into besides the the color issue is that it's 28 inches. Um, 4K at that DPI, I'm not super old, but I'm getting there. And I have to put my glasses on and, uh, you know, get pretty close to the screen. If uh, something pops up and it doesn't recognize that I have the um, resolution set to 150%. So Uh reading off of that becomes an issue. And then on top of that, um, having that small a text is is not acceptable for some applications. Sure. Um, I would like to see in the future, 
40 inch maybe that might be the ideal size 4k panels and that's yeah. actually what's exciting about uh this seiki offering is right now they offer several 39 inch and above 4k panels at 30 hertz if these new ones sit in the 39 inch range um that extra size uh means a lower dpi but it also means that i'll be able to actually use the monitor mm-hmm. like i would a 1080p panel in yeah. a normal application and i think for me the um the amount of pixels is less of an issue as to how far apart they are i kind of actually want them to be um uh less dense simply so i can use the monitor as i would with any of my 1080p panels Um, yeah i find it um frustrating when uh, you know a text box pops up and it's the warning for something and i have to go put my nose almost up to the screen (laughs) in order to read it right now the panel the 2560 by 1440 panel that i'm working on it's not bad but it's right at the edge of the uh, amount of resolution i would want uh Mm -hmm. for any given panel like the text is still kind of tiny um if i if i didn't uh, sit as close as I do to it, I probably wouldn't be able to read everything. Yeah, and that that is always the that is the funny thing where it's almost like yeah there there is uh, you know something to be said of you know there is from a resolution and DPI perspective like you can have too much just because sometimes doing some of the more you know, mundane you know daily tasks having to read text and whatnot uh, becomes more challenging that it's like okay where's the benefit you know other than just larger screens you know screen real estate itself so yeah now moving on from there i've got a few discussion topics uh, yeah. we're pushing up against an hour so i don't want to go keep you up too sure. late but um i'll just pick uh, one or two of these um one of them is a rumor that uh, the gh5 may be released at nab 2015 and supposedly it might be able to handle 8k and 60 frames per second at 4k uh what do you think about that if that becomes true, I'm going to be really upset that I just bought the GH4. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I, th- I think it's great. I mean, the, quite honestly, um, the 4K at 60 frames per second is actually probably more um, enticing to me than the actual 8K. Um, like with the GH4, uh, you know, as I was always doing, you know, my research and whatnot when I was trying to decide what camera I wanted to buy, you know, a lot of people were talking, oh, 4K this, 4K that. The actual real reason why I decided to go with the GH4, I mean, 4K was important, but it was being able to actually record that variable uh, frame rate and getting the 96 frames per second at 1080 and be able to actually do slow-mo without having to use any kind of like other software, you know? Um, so the 60 frames per second at 4k would be nice just because now you can actually record at a higher frame rate. I mean, it's not slow-mo, um, you know, you know, speed there, but to be able to just have that other option. But me personally, I, th- I mean, I think it'd be great, but I, depending on the price, I'd probably be a little upset that I just bought the GH4. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this is actually going to happen or not. Um, yeah. the prices are starting to fall on the GH4. Um, yeah. I've seen them as low as, uh, thirteen ninety nine on Amazon and B and H, and then uh, the used market they've dropped down as low as a thousand dollars in some cases, which is pretty awesome if you're buying. But it sucks sure. if you're going to resell yours. Uh, Panasonic has done this to users in the past, though. Uh, the GH four yeah. came hot on the tails of the GH three, and yeah. the GH three was barely an incremental upgrade from the GH two, arguably. So sure. people got an incremental upgrade followed by a really amazing upgrade. But they, if they bought the camera the year before, they kind of got screwed on that whole uh, price and upgrade business. 
Yeah, and that's what's surprising to me and sort of disheartening is that, you know, like the GH4, I mean, I just bought mine, you know, not too long ago. And I got mine at, you know, sort of a lower price than I guess what the retail was for, for some time now. Um, I was definitely closer to that, you know, 1300 than versus like the 17 or 1800 But um, the fact that, you know, used, they're only going for, say, around 1000 sort of stinks because you'd hope that the camera would at least retain its value. But yeah, the fact that the GH4 just came out, you know, early last year, um, if I'm not mistaken, you know, the, fi- the fact that the GH5 would come out and, and be at 8K and whatnot, I just, yeah, I, I wouldn't like to see Panasonic do that. So I, I'm sort of hoping that that rumor probably isn't true. I'm kind of in a good spot. I um I bought two GH4s on pre-order when they were uh, first released. And because they completely disappeared from stock, I kept one GH4 and sold the other one for, uh, I think it, it went for $2,300. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I paid um, uh, like $1,699, so $1,700 for both of them. So I yeah. ended up uh, uh, making out pretty well selling mine while there was none in stock. It, so uh, I've basically made up for the difference in loss that I, I've gotten from the GH4 dropping in price. And I probably wouldn't be hurt too much if a GH4 h5 came out uh will i buy one you know unless it offers something crazy like better low light performance i'm pretty happy with what i'm getting out of the gh4 right now 8k doesn't really interest me and and 60 frames per second at 4k you know i don't really care for slow-mo so much and if i did i could shoot 1080p at 96 frames per second on the gh4 and and still be there so Exactly. Now, why did you get rid of the second GH4? Was there a particular reason? Or I like the GH4. I just didn't feel that I needed two of them. Sure. What the GH4 fulfills in my kit is uh, uh, basically a tiny camera that offers 4K as well as uh, being a very decent resolution and, and decent workhorse at up to 1600 ISO. So mm-hmm. I didn't need two of them because I still have, at the time, I had a, a two maybe three 5d mark threes um and so i you know i was debating on what to keep and what to get rid of as for the 5d mark threes i ended up uh uh, getting rid of a few of those as well as my canon c100 and uh, scaling to one 5d mark three an a7s and the uh, gh4 and those all kind of have their their spots the gh4 is my travel camera and my camera of choice when i want to pack light my 5d mark three is still kind of my workhorse and my a7s even though i have all the adapters and whatnot to uh, shoot with canon lenses on it um uh, it tends to come out mainly when i need uh, ultra low light performance when the 5d mark three don't get me wrong it has very good quality and low light uh, but the a7s uh, vests it enough that um, that's what i use when i'm only lighting a scene with uh, say candles or um, you know a street light coming from the window and a a few little led lights or something like that yeah, if, that's, if there's one hope that I, I hope that happens, you know, when we were talking at the at the top of the show, when we we're uh, you know talking about the um, the uh, Canon rumors and the and the 50 megapixels, is I hope that you know as they're coming out with newer cameras that there's somehow, and I know it's difficult, especially if they have, you know, full frame sensors and whatnot is, is to try to make them a little bit smaller. Cause that was part of the reason why I didn't go back to Canon 5d Mark three is because the theme was just a tank. 
I mean, it was just large um, for me, especially, you know, when, when I'm doing a lot of work on my own, you know, having to lug that around uh, in addition to other equipment. That's what I liked about the GH4 is that small or really smaller. Um, but that would be my hope is that, you know, then Canon starts to, if they're able to start to make their cameras a little bit smaller, you know, um, from that perspective. So, yeah, I have the um, 6D uh, still in my kit. And that is uh, substantially smaller than the 5D Mark III. Uh, it's not nearly as small as the GH4, but uh, if you're in the Canon camp, uh, the 6D is almost full frame. It's like 99% full frame, something like that. And it's a pretty decent um, a camera to work with. I I enjoy it for photography, especially. For video, there are some more A issues and a few things like that, but um, it, it's... F- fairly reasonable i think you can pick one up for uh um 1200 bucks now so yeah you know if you if you want to go smaller but you still want to stay with all your canon lenses the 6d is definitely uh, uh an affordable option sure sure well and that that was part of the problem that you know the mistake i made is when i got rid of my canon 5d mark III. i just didn't really think i was going to be doing, doing much video sort of work and uh i ended up selling all my lenses too and oh. uh now in retrospect i'm like Darn, I should have kept some of those lenses because I could have used them on the GH4 and I wouldn't have to be replenishing all that. Well, that is one of the nice things about investing in lenses is, for the most part, they stay pretty level in value. Uh, My 50mm F1.2 can sell tomorrow for what I bought it when I originally got it, and I'll still be in pretty good shape or within, you know, spitting range of what I paid for it, depending on how much damage I do to it. But, uh, (laughs) you know, so that's really nice, at least. And you probably uh, were able to make a a fairly substantial amount selling off your Canon glass and uh, reinvesting in um, GH4 stuff isn't going to be too big of an issue. No, no, absolutely not. Especially be based on just the cost uh, uh, difference between the um, the Canon 5D Mark III and then the GH4. I mean, there's such a considerable price difference there that right there, I'm I'm already money ahead. So. Yeah, and the the 5D Mark III, if you sold it off a while ago, you probably did better than some are doing now. I believe it's back down to around um, 1999 to 2100 for sales price, which is um, it's pretty crazy. That's gray market, yeah. but that's still – that's come down yeah, from 3200 when it originally came out. Yeah, I can't remember what I sold it for, but I know when I bought it, I know the original you know retail was going for like 32 and at one point I bought it I think from B&H at like – 25 26 something it was it was below three and then when i went to sell it though and i was just looking at prices on bnh at the time it was right back up to like the 3200 and i was like well i'm glad i at least bought it when i did so yeah no joke um it jumped around a lot when uh, the magic lantern hack came out um i bought mine before the raw hack came out or one of mine Mm -hmm. because i had several and i think i paid 2200 for it before the hack after the hack it shot all the way back up to um almost 3000 again and i was able when i sold off one of mine i was able to sell it off for 2600 so i still came out fairly well on that deal um Mm -hmm. and i'm just lucky because i pay a lot of attention to um ebay and that sort of thing you should really check out though uh there's a, a site called camel 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 and you can set up uh any product in amazon 
and I, I believe there's sites that are similar for uh, B&H and for eBay as well. But uh, okay. basically, it'll trend the price of items like that for you on a regular basis and tell nice. you like when it's at the highest point and when it's at the lowest point. And you can actually set up um, reminders and notifications to tell you when a product is dropped below whatever your price threshold is. And so huh. it's pretty cool if um, if you're watching Amazon and you see that, well, uh, I saw this hard drive for you know $240. Well, now it's 300 and some change. Well, you set up uh, a notification on Camel, Camel, Camel. Uh, I use if this and that for it. And mm-hmm. that will actually look at it and send me an alert to my phone or to my email letting me know that the product that I'm interested in has gotten down to the price that I'm interested in paying for it, and you can go nice. pick it up right away. Um, yeah, and, and, and you buy stuff on eBay. Does it work with eBay too? Or uh, Camel 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 is just for uh, Amazon, but there is okay. an eBay equivalent as well as a B&H equivalent. Um, okay. the, eBay also has an internal setup that you can have a saved search that will go through with uh, certain specifications and email you each week with uh, stuff that fits into that category. So if yeah. you set a price limit and you do some kind of clever settings in your eBay account, you can have them contact you every week with the list of items like that. Sure. Um, I don't know how much you buy from eBay, but those are two, like, and I guess that brings us to the pick of the week because those are my two. Camel, Camel, Camel is pretty okay. awesome. If you haven't checked that out, go ahead and hit that up. Uh, for yeah, you, absolutely. what is your pick of the week? You know, um, for me, obviously, I, I, I hate to keep talking about GH4s and whatnot. Um, recently, for me, as I've been trying to just rebuild my equipment stash, uh, I just recently got the, um, I think I'm going to probably mispronounce it, the Hanu um, V2 uh, cage for okay. the GH4. And when I first got it, I didn't think I was going to necessarily like it. Like, you know, you see it online, you read reviews and whatnot, and it seems enticing. Then you sort of get it on, you get the camera in there and um, you start to question, did I make the right decision? Um, but I've been using it now for about a week and I've actually been enjoying it quite a bit um so that's sort of my pick of the week i know it's been out there for some time now but um you know being a, a fairly new gh4 user I, I you know i was definitely wanting to focus on getting a cage for it just because it is such a small camera and uh i've been really happy for it so far i'm going to be trying my biggest challenge is uh, I, I, I at times want to be able to use a follow focus, and I've got this one follow focus. I can't remember the name of the company or where I got it from back a while ago, but um, it's got a 15 millimeter you know rail system and everything else. But it just you know as I was mentioning before, I'm trying to figure out how to keep things as compact and small and light as possible. And with the rail system I have right now, um, it requires that I have to actually mount it to its, you know, um, a quick release uh, with the actual um, openings for the rails on underneath. And so I came across this other cage called the, I think it's the Swedish Chameleon. Huh. And uh, I, I saw that, but what was interesting is I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I have to admit I'm cheap. So when it comes to like cages, I just it, like I see people who like use like wooden camera and stuff. That's they're way out of my nice, budget, but they're yeah. in the thousand dollar range for a good yeah. kit. Yeah, and so it's sort of out of my budget. So when I saw this, you know, Hanu uh, on you know photography and cinema, and it was only like one hundred and eighty dollars with the uh, uh, HDMI clip and the top handle, I'm like, well, I'll give that a shot. But the one thing I saw with the Swedish Chameleon, which again, that's one that it's not as expensive as. Uh, wooden camera but it's still you know you're looking at about you know close to three hundred dollars for it but they um in their demo they had this little clip that would um works with the i forget the name of the rail system itself not the rail but 
the um, the way their um, cage is manufactured, it allows for you to have sort of this sliding clip that 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 you can tighten up and it can hold a 15 millimeter rail and it sort of sits off to the side of the cage and you can connect uh, sort of a um, uh, you know a follow focus and whatnot to it. So as I've been looking at the Hanu, I'm like, it looks awfully similar. So I, I ordered this little clip. It was like fifty three dollars, of course, but I ordered it from B and H, and I'm I'm getting it on Monday, and I'm really hoping that it actually works on the Hanu cage so that I can basically clip this like adapter to the side of the cage, run a 15 millimeter rod from it and put my file focus right on it instead of having to use this whole, you know, um, quick release plate attached to a tripod plate and, and just adding more bulk to the actual setup itself. Yeah. That sounds interesting. Um, you'll have to send me a picture of that. Um, Absolutely. I've been using the uh, Veravon cage for the last uh, four or five months, and it's not a super pricey cage. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it runs at about $260 new, I believe. And I, I, it has its pluses and minuses, but it gives you plenty of mounting uh, points for your camera, and it also provides access to most everything. And the price is fairly reasonable for a solid piece of machined aluminum. Uh, I had to do some sanding on it, which is kind of disappointing for something you buy brand new. Yeah. But uh, uh, now they're selling them on B&H and uh, Adorama and some of these other sites where you could actually get a warranty if they uh, miss powder coat it and fill up the area so much that you can't actually slide the parts into the pieces. Oh, that's nice. Now, and, and it has the strap on the side too, right? Uh, yeah, you know right – I've, I messed around with that as well as a few other versions of the HDMI protector lock system. Um, I haven't found any of them that I felt were that great. Uh, the method that they use on the Veravon cage is a, a two-screw with a clamp type of deal for your HDMI cable. And it does protect your um, HDMI port on your camera from the cable being yanked out. But the end piece of the... Uh, plug still sticks out a little bit from the cage so if you wham it into something you can still bust the micro hdmi port uh yeah. on the camera itself uh, some of the other options um i, I don't know if it's any but i know uh, motion nine uh makes a cage that has an extra extended handle on one side of it um, oh. and that extended handle is on the hdmi side and then the locks are on the inside of that uh handle so that you don't have to worry about any of the cables coming out of the side of the camera getting hit. Yeah. The other issue I found with most of the locking systems is uh, on the um, 3.5 millimeter locking port on the top of the camera. It mm-hmm. actually is just a screw down or screw up type of deal in order to tighten down onto the audio jack going into the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, while that seems like a good idea at the time uh, in practice, it's pain in the butt to tighten and loosen every time you want to take your camera out of your rig. Yeah, it's not yeah. as it's not as useful as I thought it would be. So what I've ended up doing is I just got a, a ninety degree cable for that portion, and mm-hmm. I just throw a tie wrap around uh, a portion of the rig a little bit further up from that, so it doesn't get yanked out. And sure. then it's recessed, so you can't really bump into it and break anything with a ninety degree cable. So it's not the perfect solution, but. Uh, for the price, uh, as you said, there are a lot more expensive options out there. Yeah, the yeah. Um, uh, Motion Nine as well as the Veravon cages 
they're pretty pretty decent for the price. I'm looking at one of the Motion 9 cages with that same format for my A7S. Um, I haven't really pulled the trigger on that yet because I I do use a number of adapters, and mm-hmm. I found that the adapters, because they're so close to the body and the way these rigs are set up with the, the little lip in the front of them in order to hold the camera in place, uh, yeah. they don't leave enough room for the adapters to screw on with their support foot. Uh, yeah. So that becomes an issue, especially with the Veravon cage and the uh, Metabone speed booster, uh, that little nubbin on the bottom of the speed booster hits up against the cage when you're trying to put your lens on the camera and yeah. you can take it off. But especially if you're using something, uh, like you mentioned that, uh, Tamron 24 to 70, that's mm-hmm. a substantial weight on the end of the camera that it really wasn't designed for. And you kind of do want to use that support shoe if you're mounting it to a tripod or what have you. It, exactly. And that, and that was the problem with the Hanu too, is that, um, I, I, I had to take the support shoe off. Fortunately, it seems to hold the weight all right. Um, you know, and what's nice is, you know, depending on how I set up the, uh, tripod quick release plate on underneath the cage itself it can sometimes lean down a little bit and sort of take some of that stress off the lens sort of just tilts down just a little bit um I, but I wish I, I'd be able to keep that foot on there. Um, you know, and that's the other thing too, is, I mean, obviously the wooden cameras are expensive, but the, the other the problem I find with the, um, the cages, uh, especially even the one I have is, um, and that's why the Swedish chameleon was even interesting to me, but again, I'm, I'm cheap. So I, I just didn't want to spend over say $200. Um, but being able to get to the, 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 the hand grip on the camera itself, there's something that's, very reassuring for me to be able to hold on to that hand grip and be comfortable. And with, you know, the cage like the Hanu, it's really tough to reach around the metal and really hold it like normal. That's uh, where the uh, Veravon um, actually uh, succeeds is the handle on the grip side of the camera actually has a leather strap to go along with it. I've since taken it off because I don't really uh, feel the need to have it, but you can put it on there and the cage itself is low enough profile that you can hold on to your camera as well as the camera grip itself and still access all the controls with your thumb without much issue. And having the grip on actually gives you that extra support if you're just holding the camera and then the top handle at the same time. It's not the perfect solution, but it sounds like it might be better than the format that you're dealing with on the hand grip side of things. Yeah, I mean, but that's the fortunate thing is, I mean, like like I mentioned before, when I I first got the cage, I was a little concerned that it was probably not going to work for me. And then once I got uh, it out on my on my Manfrotto monopod and was able to work with it, um, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, you yeah. know, um, because I'm able to use the the monopod handle. I've got you know the the legs on the bottom of the monopod to sort of keep support. Um, so it actually it hasn't been that bad. But is it the most ideal? No, but will it do for right now, given you know the price point and everything else? Absolutely. Well, on that note, um, thanks, Derek, for uh, yeah. taking this time to do the podcast with me. Do you have anything uh, you'd like to promote or where people can find you on the Internet? Um, I can be found on Twitter. Uh, Derek Burnt uh, uh, is my handle there. And uh, still trying to build up on doing work on Vimeo and YouTube. So uh, more to come from that. Um, like I mentioned before, we've uh, I'm starting to just work on some pet creative projects right now. Um, but slowly getting back into things. But I just appreciate the opportunity to uh, connect with you and have the opportunity uh, to talk with you for an hour. And uh, look forward to hopefully talking to you to, uh, again. Awesome, man. Take care. All right. You too.